Welcome to the Mental Health in Schools podcast, designed and delivered by Anna Bateman, founder of Halcyon Education. First, a quick word from our sponsors. CPOMS is an online system for schools to manage pastoral concerns and events now used by over 10,000 schools. The main reason it works so well is that the categories of information a school logs on CPOMS are chosen by the school, so that the concerns you face that are more unique to your community or individuals can be logged accordingly. It saves a huge amount of time compared to doing things on paper. Chronologies for pupils or school-wide reports can be generated quickly. The Service Point support team provide an incredible standard of service and are one of the main reasons CPOMs spread by word of mouth to so many schools. For more information, go to www.cpoms.co.uk where you can also book a demo for your school. Now to the podcast. Well, hello and welcome to Halcyon Education Podcasts. I'm thrilled to have Dr. Ashraf Patel joining me today from Innovating Minds. We're going to be talking all things mental health in schools. So it's great to have you with me, Asha. So if you wouldn't mind just doing a little bit of introduction and then talking about Innovating Minds, that'd be amazing. Yeah. Hi there, Anna. And hi, everybody. So I'm Asha. Uh, I'm a clinical psychologist uh, and the founder of Innovating Minds. And Innovating Minds uh, started because I used to work in forensic mental health services. So I used to work with high-profile murderers and sex offenders. And what I realized is actually a lot of their childhood experiences and experiences in schools didn't support their mental health. Uh, therefore, I wanted to look into early intervention and look how schools can adopt uh, this therapeutic approach that we use in healthcare settings so that everybody's mental health is supported, so that staff and students' mental health. So that's what Innovating Minds' uh, vision and mission is, is around about providing early intervention and supporting schools to create that whole school approach to mental health. It's fantastic to hear that sort of that story that sits behind that, because I think that the, the challenge always for schools, isn't it, is that balance between the, the kind of the clinical side perhaps we might talk about around mental health that typically you would, you know, access support from the NHS, for example, but then you've got the education side and the, the two are very, very different in the way they operate, the language, the, you know, to try and blend them for schools to be able to, to for things to land is always tricky, I think. So how do you do that, Innovative Minds, and, and through your approach? Yeah, so what I quickly realised was that you can't shoehorn the, the health approach into the education system. So it doesn't fit. And as clinicians, we're used to working very differently. We're used to working within the healthcare system. Uh, and the education system is very different, uh, right through to its policies, procedures, uh, the training uh, that staff have had in education is very different to the healthcare sector. And rightly so. So for me, it was really important to get to understand how the education system works and how the healthcare system can complement, um, adapt to fit into the system, into the education system. Hmm. So I quickly realized actually, there's a lot of things that we would do in healthcare that are, for example, all clinicians are very much aware around uh, what we call as institutional abuse. And for that, that meant that my clients, the patients that I had, I couldn't give them the same care plan. They all had to have individualised care plans and individualised interventions because they all had different needs. 
And if you're seen to be putting in blanket approaches, then the regulator would pull us up on that. Yeah. However, in education sector, there are blanket approaches that take place and students have to go through this particular way in this pipeline to be able to access uh, support or whether it's for mental health or any other difficulties. So there isn't that flexibility in there. However, if we think about what the term looks like, the institutional abuse, the education sector is an institution in itself. Mm. So what we've had to learn uh, as a clinician is actually how can we support schools to think more widely? And it's, because, it's not because they don't want to, it's because they've not had the chance to, they've not given the flexibility to be able to do that. Um, so there's also a very different approach in how, how staff are supported as well to be able to use the initiative uh, and take on some responsibility uh, instead of having to follow these strict policies and procedures that tell you to do X, Y, Z, and you can't go outside of those zones. It's really interesting to hear you say the the difference in approach between the clinical and then the educational side and this sort of idea of a, a pipeline that, that, that children have to go through. And I think that's the same for, you know, SEND and all sorts of um, other areas, isn't it, that it's kind of you have to fail so many times or we have to have tried and failed so many times before you'll actually get what you need, which seems really uh, counterintuitive, doesn't it? Definitely. And I've spoken to uh, like CEOs of academy trusts and head teachers of uh, like mainstream schools. And their approach that they might take is that we're mainstream education. So I think it's a system approach maybe within education that then we're all kind of trying to navigate because when you look at just of what taxpayers money goes on is around this education sector and particularly mainstream that it's not built to support children with SEN or mental health difficulties so therefore the only option sometimes becomes is for exclusion to happen to open up the next door and like you said then it means that they're rejected from the education system quite early on uh, that has an impact on the rest of their well-being footprint. So often their educational and their life trajectory. Yeah, absolutely. So do you think that schools are now becoming more taking that whole school approach to mental health? I suppose it's a phrase that I, you know, I think often gets banded about. We don't quite know what you know, what does that actually mean? So when, you know, we're widening this idea of being more inclusive, so there's some tolerance within the system of of mental health how do you what you do how does how does what you do help schools to be able to to do that and have more of a kind of mental health inclusivity what we've done is develop the online platform edupod uh, and that gives schools the ability to like audit themselves first and that audit tool is very prescriptive so either you have it or you don't and that audit tool is based on public health england's a principles plus our clinical and practical experience of working within schools. Um, so schools can audit themselves and have a look at actually what they are already doing that might be contributing and already identify what might be missing and what they need to develop on. So Edupod is that one-stop shop where mental health leads schools can work together to create their approach and it's responsive to people's journeys. So I've never seen two schools that go on the same journey uh, um, it'll be te- dependent on so many factors, including whether your staff are on board. And mm. this approach requires a majority of your staff to be on board with this approach for it to really effectively work. Where I've seen it 
make a huge difference to exclusion numbers, behavioural incidences, attendance for staff and for students. It's where a majority of the staff are on board and those that are ambivalent as to whether mental health should be supported within schools kind of sit on the side, not quite commit, but don't get in the way either. I think that there's no unconscious sabotaging going on. Um, so EduPod helps with schools to be able to go on that journey and navigate it because a lot of people taking up roles as a mental health lead have either been given it because you're the Senko safeguarding lead and it fits in your remit or you've got a real passion for it. So it guides you and the school so you can have more than one user on there, which is really important. But also what we do is give you that coaching and clinical support as well. Mm. because nobody wants to get mental health wrong so either people don't do it or tread really carefully and delay in responding and acting and particularly because the responsibility that might come with it particularly risk around self-harm suicide eating disorders that we've seen an increase in so we're there to offer that support as well as kind of be there to support your journey through the technology so you can do it when it suits you as a school rather than mm. having to wait on a clinician to come in on a Tuesday when everybody's teaching or everyone's responding to a crisis, uh, for example, and then you don't get to spend that time with that clinician. Yeah, I think you've, yeah, you've really hit the nail on the head there, isn't it? There's that fle- flexibility, not only for schools to be able to bespoke what's how how what their journey looks like, but when that journey sort of, and, and when the work is done, um, according to the needs of the school and, and and who's available and when, and I was just wondering about then the 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 senior leads for mental health. You were talking there about some that have kind of almost been given it, and then others that are you know really passionate about it. Do you yourself see a difference in the way that schools then are able to create an, an inclusive approach um, and reduce stigma around mental health when you've got leads who are different? Yep, so the most effective leads are those that are passionate but also have a strategic ability. They have a seat at the table to influence change and make decisions. They have the ability to think about the whole school and the system, so they're not working in silo and thinking, I've got to do this all on my own, because those that do that and don't have the buy-in from senior leadership team end up being burnt out themselves and they get really frustrated and they're knocking on a lot of closed doors and their own well-being suffers. Mm. They also then become the single point of contact where everybody then just refers every child to the well-being lead instead of teachers developing their own skills and knowledge and being able to support children and signpost them to maybe external services or through the safeguarding uh, referral process. So those have a passion but also can think strategically or are line managed by an SLT member are those that are generally more effective in embedding an approach that is sustainable and isn't reliant on that one person so for me it's about a culture so if somebody leaves it still exists and generally you feel that culture when you step into the school it kind of gives you a hug it's a very different feeling and atmosphere in the school that happens when you integrate this approach. You know, I would echo everything you've just said, you know, from, from what I've seen when I work with schools, that 
and particularly this this idea that somehow then it's pastoral teams job to you know almost fix every child because and, and understandably teachers are overwhelmed and, and you know obviously there's been a reduction in staff so they don't get the kind of support that they perhaps would have done in class or in in form so this then is then leading to kind of like I don't know what to do so here you go could somebody sort this child out and bring them back to me fixed you know there's almost that isn't there and that, that in, in the reality I mean even from a clinical point of view that that isn't a that isn't even a thing is it that we hand someone to a clinician and they fix them that's not the approach I, I don't think yeah so there's this thing about wanting to fix children uh, and as, as if there's some magic wand or magic intervention but actually the magic intervention is relationships you can have the best psychologist and the best intervention but if there's no relationship there's no outcome and sometimes we get caught up in too much of thinking or wanting to diagnose children and young people or keep giving them interventions I mean if you look at looked after children they're overloaded with people and interventions and trying to fix these children what we've actually done at Innovative Minds is create what we call the Healing Together program and it's a trauma-informed response whereby it is a manualized program it's six sessions but the focus is around education and you being with that young person through that relationship to learn how their brain and body works and what happens in response to when they're feeling uh, that they need their body's gone into survival mode, for example. Mm. Uh, what happens to their body and how, does, how do they feel and what strategies can they use that they can take into later life? So you hear children being labelled as with anger management problems. Anger doesn't sit on its own. There's other emotions that come with it. But as adults, we just look at the behaviour of what anger might portray instead of helping the young person think, actually, there's probably fear, anxiety, disappointment, whatever other emotions that are sitting with that anger. So quite quickly as adults, we start to put these labels or make these sweeping statements that they're attention seeking or they, what do you expect? This has happened to them. This is going to happen or they've got anger problems, which is not helpful for you as an adult because it shuts off that empathy uh, as adults have towards children. But also children then start to believe, oh, it's because I'm angry. I'm an angry person or there's something wrong with me. And that's not the case. And the children that respond and the adults that respond well, it's because somebody's sat and listened to them and engaged with them and being curious, what's it like for you and how, what can we do to help? So you see that language change as well. Yeah, there was a, a school in Scotland, they, they um, yeah, they, they stopped calling it challenging behaviour and called it distressed behaviour. And, and, and I just felt, yeah, that language change immediately means, you know, if, if, if somebody's displaying challenging behaviour, you, you, you lean away, don't you? You back away. I don't want, you know, oof. Um, but if, if you say actually this is distressed behaviour, this young person is distressed, it mean, means that empathy and you you lean in, don't you, to kind of, yeah, well, what's going on here? And then sort of lends itself to that curiosity. And I guess in a way that's where we see that this this blend of, of clinical and, uh, and and education, I suppose, with um, with how we how we interact with children is is away from this fix it idea but more to the relational listening, curiosity, you know, how can we help this young person get what they need? I guess for mental health leads then, how, how, where, where is the, the line, I suppose, to, to, to them being able to 
to know. I was just wondering whether you you had a thought about this. Where is that clinical line? You know, we want to help children, don't we, and, and, and help them lower their levels of distress. But at what point does the school say, actually, this is beyond what what we can cope with? How do they know where that is, do you think? So for me, it's about risk assessment. So at what point, and this is why it's good for schools to mental health leads, particularly to learn about how to risk assess, and that can be for any situation. So it comes a point when it's when it's no longer safe for for the child and for the school to be able to manage the risk that's associated with that young person experiencing severe mental health difficulties. Um, so. For example, if you have a student that is really depressed and they've got uh, suicide ideation and maybe is attempting to engage in suicide behaviour or making active plans, and your risk assessment tells you actually this environment that we're providing for the student is not going to help them. In, in fact, it might increase risk of right. uh, what we're scared of, for example, like suicide, what we're mindful of. So it is about whether as a school and the environment and the support that you can offer, does that manage the risk and the young person's emotional distress that they're experiencing? Or are you now in a position where actually you're heightening that risk? There's also something around your remit as that you're, as a school, you're not responsible to provide clinical support or mm-hmm. clinical expertise. And it's be mindful about you as a staff team knowing where that line is because you've probably spent many years with this child for example what can happen is boundaries can start to blur and people want to go into survival mode and want to save uh this young person so i've seen it in schools where they might be actually doing everything and everything possible to keep this child in school the nature of the system works that sometimes you have to let the child go to be able to open the next door for that child to be able to access specialist help and maybe mm-hmm. the local authorities or the uh, CAMs, for example, or mental health support teams to be able to step up and take yeah, ownership yeah. and take on that. So it's also having that time to reflect as a school or as that team around that child as to say, actually, are we still doing what's in the best interest for this child? Or is it now that we're doing it in the best interest for ourselves? But it's really important that teams take the time to reflect. But also engaging with the local services and understanding where, what that referral criteria is and discussing it with the clinician at what point. And it's really the magic that happens is where you can open doors, is where you're factual about reporting on what you're seeing and the impact it's having, rather than people saying, oh, I think that it's got ADHD or I think it's this going on, because that then skews how a clinician can view it. And then automatically, yeah, yeah. if you mention like behavior disorders, for example, people shut the door on you. Whereas actually there might be comorbid mental health difficulties going on here. They might have a, what you see as what they class as behavioral disorder, but they might also have a anxiety going on or depression, something else. So explain the symptoms and what you're seeing rather than you trying to diagnose and label it because you're already then skewing the assessment process some really really interesting points that you've made there and and, and I was just thinking about the, the idea of assessing risk I suppose because in the work that I do I know schools we don't have necessarily a a risk a way of 
of pulling that risk together or identifying that risk? What what do you recommend? Yeah, so we uh, we use a template, uh, so a risk assessment template, and it's been something that I've put together based on my experiences assessing risk in, in medium secure services that I worked in. So it's very much about, um, it's, a, it's looking at protective factors first and foremost of kind of what's going on for this uh, young person, but also using a formulation. So to be able to use a risk assessment, you've got to have some form of formulation. Um, we use something called the five Ps formulation. Um, and it's important when you're formulating, you don't fall in love with your formulation because remember, it's just a hypothesis. It's just information you're gathering uh, from where it's parents, carers, um, from the child, from other staff members. And when you're gathering this information, don't forget to include administration support, maintenance staff, because they've got gems of information uh, that you probably don't know that they have and they don't even know they've got themselves. And then following that, you then create this risk assessment where you're identifying scenarios that might increase risk, for example. And then you're also identifying strategies that can help to decrease that risk and manage that risk safely. But some schools might code it as to whether you're currently at a red or what might happen. So you're getting like things like early warning signs or particular triggers, for example. So if there's a an anniversary date, for example, that you know around this time of the year, you're likely to see an increase in X, Y, Z. So it's a document that's put together very simply. It doesn't need to be reams and reams because no one's going to look at it, where you can identify and map that risk. So people are aware of coping strategies, early warning signs, potential triggers, but also what the school are doing to safely manage risk. Mm. By using this approach, what you're also doing is gathering that evidence. So when or if a time does come for that young person that do need access to specialist support and you might get kicked back from services, you can demonstrate what you as a school have done in your ability. So what you can offer within as a school to manage that risk. And now you're saying, actually, we've done this and this and our risk assessment has shown us now it's not safe or that child needs this type of support. Yeah. Um, to manage that it also helps you as a school to contain that risk and feel safe with it because what happens when you're carrying a lot of risk and particularly as a mental health lead designated safeguarding lead even as a head teacher that's something you're always thinking about in the back of your mind of what if mm. um so you're wanting something that's it's a bit like what we two to somebody said to me about these two tablets a painkiller and a vitamin and your painkiller is is this risk that you're carrying and your risk assessment is going to be that tablet to help them ease that pain. So that's what you're looking for, kind of how can you create systems in the existing systems you've got that's going to be able to manage that risk. We're not saying do extra work. It's actually about working within the systems you've already got. For those of you listening, I spoke to a psychologist, a clinical psychologist, I think in series one, and uh, actually provided a handout around around the five piece of formulation and how to how to do that. Do, do you have something that you share, or is that part of Edupod? Or yep, so that's uh, in Edupod. We also um, presented at the test SEN show what we call Detective Senko. Uh, to help people build piece information together. So 
I'll check if that recording uh, is available, but also um, if people get in touch as well, then it's something that we could provide some consultation on and I'll see if we can drag out uh, some of the the recordings that we've got around uh, being able to manage risk as well to make it accessible. Yeah, I, that would be great. Thank you, because I can imagine those listening and thinking, actually, yes, we, you know, we can really... I think the way that you've presented it really makes sense. And so, you know, that there's probably going to be that inertia for mental health leads to kind of, you know, at least to be able to, to, to get uh, an idea around the five P's and just sort of how does that work in terms of risk um, for particular individual students? Um, because we know at the moment, don't we, that there are students uh, presenting with, with a higher suicidal ideation and self-harm. So, you know, and I think that, that what that also does as well, doesn't it, it sort of, it helps the adults as well in 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 the system to feel a bit more settled if that's you know if we can say use that word to feel like um actually we're able to to understand what's going on because sometimes you know you, you they'll say all oh, this student suicidal and there's a panic you know understandably i mean that that's not a criticism at all it of course because we're not trained in school and so what being able to process what you're talking about the five p's looking at the the kind of protective factors and what are presenting factors what are the things that are contributing and will help this young person actually doesn't just help that young person helps the adults around them as well doesn't it so i think it's a it's a great process and again um that blend of clinical and education which seems to work quite well i think yeah and one of my top tips would be if you're working with like uh, mental health support teams um, and CAMS uh, practitioners, for example, making it really clear that you're looking for something that you can learn from them and integrate it into, into the school system. So we're hearing lots around, oh, well, they're running programs for us. Well, my question is, is one of your staff members in those sessions? So you're learning from the practitioners because the funding is going to run out and they're going to go at some point or things are going to keep changing it's not sustainable whereby if you're developing your own staff you're creating a sustainable approach internally so you're not always relying on somebody externally and also you're developing your staff's skills so they might they'll never become a clinician unless they go through training but how to facilitate groups for example and how to uh communicate quite complex terminology uh to students these things that you can be learning by watching practitioners deliver it. Involved and don't be afraid of, oh, I can't do it, because actually you can, because it's all about that relationship and the language that you use and the pace and the tone. And it's a very, it's a very skilled process to be able to facilitate. It's a bit like a classroom, teaching a lesson. It's a very skilled thing. and Nobody can just get, get up and do it. It takes time. And from the professionals and let them know what you need as a school. Don't feel like you're on the back foot because they've got doctor or they've got a, a clinical job title, actually you're a part of that multidisciplinary team and you're a part of being able to know what's going on. You don't need to know the nitty gritty that's been said in sessions, but you should be knowing of what can you do as a school to integrate the learning that's happening in those sessions and pull it into the school environment. So that child's only going to have an hour with a clinician and then they're going to come back into your environment and spend six hours with you, for example. What a great top tip. Yeah. I always say that to schools. It's like, it's, it was almost like, you know, a, a, a CAMS referral was, was, was the fix or the solution. It's like, but you do realize they're only with them possibly for 50 minutes a week, if that, 
uh, and the rest of the time they're with you. So yeah, that that's absolutely fundamental, isn't it? That I hadn't really thought about the importance of sitting in those sessions and and that you are part of that team. Because I think again, it, when when you're busy in school, it's easy just to go phew, that's sorted right next. But actually, that you you invest in your teachers and your uh, pastoral team to be able to learn. I, I love that tip. And I think it's that time to slow. In schools, we're so reactive and you're so heightened all of the time. I've never worked in a place where I've, my body's been constantly on heightened mode all of the time. Even when I worked in prisons and with offenders or anything like that, I actually felt it was calmer. And it's the environment that does that and the people. So if everybody's heightened, yeah. feeding off everyone else is heightened, including the students. So you notice a massive difference in how people are responding and how the students are responding. Because as as staff were also heightened, survival mode constantly. Whereas if we just flick it to actually we're, we're a reactive approach, uh, to a proactive approach, then actually you're going to see a change in energy levels as well. There's always somebody, I'm sure everybody can identify that stressy person in the school and you think, God, if I sit next to them for lunch, lunch is going to be hard because you're, you're tense and you're anxious. So those things are really important. What a great tip to end on. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I think we always sometimes, we just need sometimes that reflection, don't we, of someone to say, actually, you know, the, the environment is actually re- reactive and stressful because when you're in it day after day after day, year after year, it, it becomes the norm, doesn't it? But it doesn't need to be. So well, thank you so much for sharing your um, your wisdom and your um, expertise. Um, so if anybody wants to go on to Innovate, Innovating Minds, so all the information is there that we've talked about today on, on your website, isn't it? And including Edupod, um, if you're interested in, in, in any of the courses and uh, finding a bit more about Asha and her team, it's all on there. Right, thank you. Thank you. Now a short break to hear from our sponsors. Stamps by Post is a family-run business and a Royal Mail licensed provider of postage stamps to schools, charities and businesses. So, whether you're a small rural school or a large multi-academy trust, you can have your stamps delivered straight to your door instead of visiting the post office. And when you order before 4pm, they're dispatched the same day via the first-class post. Stamps by Post have been providing customers with a first-class service now for over 25 years. To find out more or to place an order in just a few clicks, go to www.stampsbypost.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. For more information and support on this topic, go to the resources section of the website, www.halcyon.education forward slash podcasts. Podcasts.